Good morning. Well done, as I do say. I am feeling festive today. I hope you are. No. Okay. Uh, let's do this. Uh, uh, I see some of you guys fanning yourself out there. We, we have some AC issues, and uh, believe me, no one is more disappointed than you guys in that. I have these lights, festive jacket on. It'll be nice and warm for us today. All right, we are diving into Advent, as you know, and so let's, uh, let's get started. I have a three-year-old son, uh, a three-year-old son who somewhere along the way, maybe four, five, six, eight months ago, must, I don't know, maybe he went to Walmart on his own, but he thinks he bought a treehouse. And so he thinks that he owns this treehouse, that, that everything has become about the treehouse, right? And so I'll, I'll say, hey, son, um, did you eat dinner? Yeah, daddy, at my treehouse. Um, hey, son, where is your baby sister? I don't know, at my treehouse. And so everything is about the treehouse. And now we've entered into this, this new phase, uh, this new phase where the story has been built so much that he, he feels the need to take us and show us the treehouse. And so he'll have me and his sister put our shoes on, uh, and then we'll go out and we'll start walking down 22nd Street looking for the treehouse. And so he'll say, hey, hey, daddy, look, it's behind that gate right there next to that house. And I'll say, no, no, son, it's actually, um, it's actually not. And he'll say, yes, it is, daddy. Let's go back there and see it. And I say, uh, no, son, this might be the uh, heights, but it's still Texas, buddy. We can get shot for that. And so we, <laughs> we don't go back there looking for the treehouse, okay? Uh, but then on and on we go um, searching for this elusive treehouse. And he- here's the point. From day one, from day one, you and I are hardwired by God to search for what we cannot see. It is part of the human DNA to search for what we cannot see. And it's part of the human DNA because it's part of the DNA of the Bible. You see, the Bible is a story of a search. And if we dive into the Old Testament, we find that to be a story of the nation Israel searching for her Messiah. The Bible is a story of a search, and it's that story that we enter into with Advent. And so I want to do something a little bit, a little bit unique today. Typically, um, this is the part where I throw a little transition and then we get right into the text. But I want to, I want to do something unique today because uh, I want to set up where we're going to go both Advent and in the, in the seasons to come. All right, I want to kind of tee up, if I can, the next year of our church uh, because we're entering into... Uh, a season where we uh, use the church calendar in a more tangible way uh, than we typically do. And the church calendar um, is not, hey, what are the dates that you're having a membership class and what's the you know, third Sunday for Vision Sunday? That's not, that's not the church calendar. So I want to I teach through what the church calendar is, why we're going to use it, how we're going to use it, and then we'll get into our text. Sound good? Woo, one of y'all, all right. Um, church calendar. Here, here's what the church calendar is. It, it is it's a historic, time-tested practice where the church would walk through cycles of seasons together. And so the seasons go like this. It starts with Advent, and then we go into what's called Epiphany, and then we go into Lent, and then we go to Easter, and then we go into what we call ordinary time. And so let me walk through those uh, different seasons. Don't worry about taking notes on this stuff. Marshall Dallas, our pastor at uh, Sojourn Montsos, wrote a blog that we're going to post in the next few days uh, for, for the heights, all right? 
It walks through this. So Advent is the, the season, the, the, the season leading up to Christmas, where we remember and we celebrate that Christ has come. And then we, we go into Epiphany, and Epiphany is just a word that means a divine manifestation. Right? So in Epiphany, we celebrate the appearing of Christ. So Advent, we longed and we looked forward to his coming. In Epiphany, we celebrate that he has come. And then we go in to Lent, and Lent is a season of more focused prayer and repentance in light of the life and death of Christ. And then we, we get to Easter, and with Easter we, we celebrate the global game-changing resurrection. And then we hit ordinary time after Easter. And ordinary time is simply the rest of the year, the other six to eight months, depending on how it falls, uh, where we walk through books of the Bible, where we walk through topical issues, thematic issues, all of life in a fallen world waiting on Christ's second advent, waiting on his second coming. That's, that's the rest of the year. And then we hit advent and we do it again. And then we hit ordinary time, we do it again. Then we hit advent 2017 and we do it again. And it's the, that's the way the calendar is designed. And so here, here's why we're using the church calendar. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this. Uh, you can jump back to that online to, to hear it. But our, our liturgy, which every church has a liturgy, right? It just means the order of your worship, right? So every church has an order to their worship. And our, our liturgy is designed to tell us the story of the gospel. So that every week when you come in, whether you know it or not, we begin with the call to worship. I guess I'm going to do it now, aren't I? Um, so don't go back and listen. You just listen now, and we'll, we'll call that a day. Um, we, we begin with a call to worship, and then we have a confession of sin, and then an assurance of pardon, and then a benediction. And that's meant to parallel the story of the gospel of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So every week you come in, you have the gospel being discipled, trained, equipped into you, whether or not you realize it or not. And our church calendar is meant to do the same thing. It's meant to be this structural way where we walk through the story of the gospel over the course of the year so that whether we know it or not, the gospel is being trained into us in tangible and intangible ways. That's why we use the calendar. And by using it, we do, two, we, we do three things. We tether ourselves to Jesus. We tether ourselves to one another and we tether ourselves to the global church, that um, discipleship is, is meant to be a communal project. And just like, we say this all the time, and I'm going to say it again in about 15 minutes, people need people. And in the same way, churches need churches. That as a church in Sojourn Heights, we need churches. And this is a tangible way to link arms with the global church as churches across the globe are following the same church calendar that we're following so we've talked about this, we're going to keep talking about this, that Sojourn Heights, we are not new, we are not novel, we are historic, and we are global. We are global enough to make Jesus visible, and we are historic enough to be relevant for today. Christianity. We're not new, and we're not novel. We are historic. We are historic enough to be relevant. So we want to anchor ourselves in that. And so here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to walk through the calendar. Um, this year, Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, our Sojourn churches, uh, we're going to use what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. A lectionary is just a collection of scriptures by season that are meant to, to really be uh, what you use in your gathered worship. And so we're going to walk through this, let this guide us through these seasons from, uh, from Advent to 
uh, to Easter, and it's a, it's a really beautiful way. So the, the lectionary, it's this historic practice, dates back fourth century. Uh, and, and this revised common lectionary is churches that are part of our theological tradition and churches that are not, that came together, put these scriptures together. And it's a beautiful way, we believe, for us to say, hey, we are part of the one body of Christ, the one global church, and here's a way that we're linking arms with them. And so we're going to use this calendar to do this. And, and in, um, let me answer this. Will we always use the calendar? Yes. Will we always use a lectionary to lead us through it? We don't know. It's, it's one way to skin the cat. It's a beautiful way. And so we're doing it this year. And we'll, we'll come back next year and pray through and figure out. And don't actually skin a cat. But uh, we, well, we don't know. The calendar is part of our DNA and it's here to stay. Uh, how we go through the calendar, we might, we might change it every year. We might stay with it. We, we don't know. We don't know. All right, so Advent. Um, Advent. Advent is the four Sundays, uh, what we're entering into now. It's the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas and Christmas Eve. That's awkward. Uh, <laughs> I get enough ribbing from the staff about the crinkling of these things that I don't need that to happen and hear about it in staff meeting. All right. Um, December 24th, Christmas Eve, Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, we're going to gather in this room, uh, and we gather on Christmas Eve not because it's a cute American holiday, not because it's a tradition, it's, it's so that we can come together and we can close out the Advent season, and Advent closes out when Christ comes, and so we, we do it on, on the 24th, 5 p.m. in this room, so that we can prepare our hearts to wake up to wake up Christmas morning and not be captivated by the look on my son's face when he's disappointed with his socks and no treehouse. Oh, well, you buy him a treehouse then, all right? And, <laughs> but so that we would wake up captivated by the reality that Christ came, that he came and that he's here, and that Christmas is not in question. That's why we come together on Christmas Eve to gather, to close out the Advent season. And to guide us through Advent, we've prepped an Advent devotional uh, that you guys can find. It's linked in the announcements. So uh, every week you guys get an email and six of you guys open it. And so open up the announcements email uh, and you'll see a link on there. Click on the one for uh, the Advent devotional and it'll take you straight to it. You can download it and it's there. It's also, if you just go to the website on the Advent banner, you click on that, it'll take you to it. Um, and there's four parts to the Advent devotional. The first part is a Valley of Vision prayer, uh, just a historic prayer with these group of men uh, that we really look up to for their devotion in a lot of ways. Uh, wrote out these prayers and we've taken pieces of them and we've written this uh, Valley of Vision prayer on there. And then we have a little paragraph, the same one on every page, about how to read the Old Testament, how as Christians, um, how as Christians we look back through the lens of Christ and read the Old Testament. And then there's daily scriptures out of the lectionary, and then there's space for a written, um, a written prayer uh, on there. And then for, uh, for parents, for parents that have kids two and up, we bought an Advent devotional to give to you guys. I believe Caitlin's handing it out this morning. And so you should have uh, that waiting for you guys. Um, and our theme as we walk through Advent this season is um, we picked the theme anchored in hope that we wanted to really root ourselves. We wanted to, to, to enter in together as a church family, as a body, and feel what Israel felt, feel what our brothers and our sisters felt as they waited for the Christ to come. 
And we want to rest in the reality that Christ did come. Christmas isn't in question. And so a few minutes ago, we read uh, the Apostles' Creed, and then we sang the Apostles' Creed. And so for all four weeks of Advent, uh, and then probably Christmas Eve too, we're going to read and we're going to sing the Apostles' Creed and let that be a tangible, structural anchor inside of our, inside of our gatherings through this, um, through this season. All right? That's the church calendar. That's what it is, why we're using it. Let's get to uh, our text, Isaiah 64. All right, a couple weeks ago, uh, last week, actually, I was talking to one of you guys. I'm not going to say who, Pablo Madrid. And we're talking about sermons. Uh, and I was just saying, hey, here's kind of the flow. Here's why I do what I do this way. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, hey, man, you know, I, you know what I like? I like that your three points, your points, uh, that's not a word, um, points aren't alliteration. And so I thought, yeah, cool. Uh, and then the rebel in me kicked in and thought, well, you know what? This is a good week for a little bit of alliteration. And so, <laughs> so here we are. Um, Isaiah 64, we're going to look at it through the lens of three R's. They're going to roll off the tongue and you're going to love it. Uh, the request, the reveal, the result. You want to say it together? No? Okay. Uh, I'll just do it for you. The request, the reveal, the result. Yeah. 64 verse 1. Here's the request. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, now to understand what it is that Isaiah is asking for, to understand the request of Isaiah right here, we, we need to see some of the context that's around this little statement. And so if we jump back into 63, here's what we're going to find at the end of uh, chapter 63, which, by the way, side note, um, if, if you don't know, if you're new to Christianity, Perfectly okay. When you're reading the Bible, the, the numbers are not part of uh, the original, right? So we put those in to help us read. And so don't, don't let yourself, when you read Isaiah 64, think that Isaiah 63 is completely separate from it. All right, the, the, the Bible fits together. And so when we read the, the Isaiah 63 at the end, here, here's what's happening. He says that our, our hearts have wandered. Isaiah's looking at Israel, and he knows that the hearts of the people have wandered, and he's saying, we are like a people who God has never ruled over. And he's asking God to come down. He's asking for God to come and make himself visible and rule the hearts of the people as a king would. For the sovereign God of the universe to enter in and rule the hearts of his people. And so we want us to enter in to the life of Isaiah. That as Isaiah looked at the people, looked at Israel, people that he loved, and he felt this burden for them so much that he would say, God, we're like a people that have never been ruled over and we're pleading with you, come down, split the heavens and come down and rule our people. We want to enter in and feel what Isaiah felt. And so we get a glimpse into the emotion of Isaiah and what he felt and what comes right after verse one. So let's read one through three. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Now, now there's, there's two things in this little three verses that really give us a glimpse, a window into Isaiah's soul, the verbs and the emotion. And they combine. When we put these two together, 
They're going to combine to give us the heart of Advent. The verbs are all past tense that Isaiah uses. This This is Isaiah looking into the situation and Isaiah looking into the people and saying, God, why would you not have already come down? God, why would you have not already come down? It doesn't make any sense to me. And Isaiah is doing exactly what we do. Right, tell, tell me who in this room hasn't looked at their lives and said, God, why have you not already intervened? Tell, tell me who hasn't looked at some situation, some circumstance, and said to God, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, and God, I don't understand why you haven't entered in. Isaiah is doing exactly what we do. And then we have the motion of Isaiah 64, 1 through 3, where the the English, when we read it in English, it's smooth, it's poetic, not the Hebrew. The Hebrew is choppy, it's rough, it's statement, statement, statement. Here's what I think Isaiah's doing. It's like, you, you know when... You know when someone says something or does something and you're just furious and you're angry and you're hurt and you're sad and you have all these emotions colliding in one uh, and then you sit down to write the email to that person, partly because we don't engage in, you know, in face-to-face anymore, we do it via email, but different sermon, different, different day. Um, no, it's not. In our family, we don't do that. If we have conflict, we engage one-on-one. We love each other enough to sit down, look each other in the eye and say, I was hurt by that. Now, back to the sermon. So when you sit down to write that email and you just start, can't believe did that, <clears throat> hurt me so bad, angry, right? And then, you, uh, and then you get up and you don't send it and then you come back a few hours later and you smooth it out and you just say, hey, you know, when you did that, it really did make me feel this and I was, right? And you make it gentle. I, I, Isaiah didn't come back and edit this. this. This was Isaiah's first draft. This is his heart being laid bare. This is him not cleaning up the email, saying, I'm longing, God, for the heavens to split and for you to come down in ways that you have, in ways that I know you will. And I'm hurting, we're hurting, your people are distant, and we need you to come back. And I think that some of us, some of us, most of us, if not all of us, but some of us need to follow Isaiah's example in here. Some of us have gotten really skilled at holding up an edited version of ourself to God. Some of us have gotten really skilled at the art of praying through the lens of a second draft. Some of us need to learn how to lay the first draft before God and say, I'm hurting and I'm angry and I need you to intervene. Because listen, God, one, he already knows. Right? Like He's not unaware of your first draft response And he's not interested in the second and third draft. He wants to change the real you. And if he's going to change the real you, we have to lay open our first draft before him. I think some of us in this room need to follow the lead of Isaiah. And so this this angst in Isaiah, it comes from looking at his people and seeing how the hearts of Israel have wandered and that the, the heart of the nation, it had a king. right? It had a king. It had someone ruling. It just, it just wasn't just wasn't God. It, it was them ruling over their own hearts. It was sin captivating them, ruling them. And I think Isaiah would be asking us a different question, a similar question, a parallel question. He would, he would come in and through this text, he might ask us, who is ruling you? 
Right? Like, like, like right now, in this moment, you're sitting in this room, you're listening to a guy who's sweating, wearing a jacket, and, and, he, and he's saying to you, who is ruling you? Like, what is ruling your heart? Like, what, is it ambition? Like, are you consumed by the need to keep climbing a ladder in your job? Like, is that what's ruling you? Is it, is it fear underneath that? And is it approval? Like, I mean, are you desperate to have people just like you? Like, do you not believe that God really does love you and so you need people to like you so you can believe God loves you? And if I'm honest, like, if we turn this into, you know, Sunday morning brain and counseling session, if I were to come clean with you guys, I would say I wrestle both. Like, like I want to do a good job and I want you to like me. That's true. I wrestle with both of these. There's, there's nobody exempt from this. What is ruling your heart today? What, what, what is it that is taking the place of the king in your heart today? He, he Isaiah, will call us to embrace the sovereign, gracious God as the one who rules and reigns in the hearts of his people, in my heart and in yours. But there's a problem. And the problem is in verse six. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That there is a, there is a specific problem that Isaiah is speaking into right here, a specific sin that Isaiah is speaking into in his people. And it's a sin of self-righteousness. He is entering in and he is calling them out for their self-righteousness that the nation of Israel had become blinded by their own arrogance. And we are, I am, you are, no different than Israel. We, we are no different than Israel. And if you think you are, that's testimony to your arrogance. That you would say, I'm not like them. We are no different. I'm no different. You're no different than Israel, we are all blinded by our own self-righteousness because the, the fallen world we were born into, we default to wanting to be the king of our own hearts. We want to be the king of our own lives. Every one of us in this room, and we're all willing, we're all willing to use religion to do it. We're willing. We're willing to use religion to become the king of our own hearts. This is a universal problem so there has to be a universal solution, and there is. Point two, the reveal. The reveal. Verse 9, Isaiah 64, 9. Be not so angry, so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. One, one commentator said this. He said, Here, here's what Isaiah knew. He said he knew that God's judgment will fall on a sinful people. There will come a point where it cannot be averted. Nevertheless, judgment is not an end in itself. It is intended to have an ultimately redemptive purpose in cleansing and restoring the people to purity. That, that in, inside of one through three, that kind of home where we started, is this symbolic judgment language that gets brought into the rest of Isaiah 64. And so Isaiah's in search of a redemptive judgment to come. Isaiah is looking forward to a redemptive judgment that would come. The only question was when, where, how, and we get the answer. 1 Corinthians 1, 
verse 4 and verse 8, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that here's what happens in the cross, that in the cross, Isaiah's expected judgment to come collided with our need to be redeemed from our self-righteousness. That in the cross, in the cross of Jesus, the expected judgment that Isaiah the expected redemptive judgment that Isaiah longed for and our need to be redeemed from our own self-righteousness collided in the cross. That in the cross, sin ruled over Jesus so it would no longer rule over us. That in the cross, at the moment of the cross, when Christ laid there, nails driven through, bleeding for our sin, sin was ruling Christ in that moment so that it would one day no longer rule over us. This is the heart of the gospel. And a divine judgment would redeem a people. A divine judgment that was poured out on the eternal son. And this, seeing this, being captivated by this, being gripped by this, eliminates. I mean, it cuts the legs out from under our self-righteousness because no longer is the problem over there. Right, no longer is the problem someone else. But in the grace of Christ, because I've been redeemed by Christ, I can take an honest look at myself. And I can actually sit before a mirror and take an honest look inside myself and I can say the problem's not them, it's me. I'm as much of the problem as they are. I can take an honest look inside my life. It's not them, it's me. And this leads us to point three, the result. The result, verse 8, 64, 8. But now, O Lord, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. You are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand that through the gospel, in the gospel, when the gospel's brought in, we can call God our Father, and we Let me say it like this, in the gospel of Christ, in Jesus, through the cross, having God as our father, we are not tenants. We're not paying rent in the kingdom. We are his children. You are his child. I I have a, um, the three-year-old son who thinks he has a tree house is also, I mean, he is rebellious. I mean, at the core, my three-year-old son is rebellious. There's not a day goes by that there isn't some form of discipline being enacted on my son. And in a few minutes, I'm going to get done preaching. I'm going to stand there. We're going to say you're dismissed. I'm going to walk through that door. My son's going to come running out. And when he comes running out, you know what I'm not thinking about? I'm not thinking about what he did yesterday or the day before or two weeks ago. I'm thinking, this is my son. Come here. How fast can I get my arms around you? How fast Can I get my arms around my son? This is the vertical change that takes place when we can call God our father. Because no matter what my son does, he is still my son. And as my son, I love him because I love him because I love him. And as often as I can, I tell my kids, hey, mommy, daddy, 
We love you because we love you because we love you. And, and son, I, I love being your daddy. Hey, little Easton. Hey, hey, buddy. First, you're about to go into timeout. But before you go to timeout, I love being your daddy. You know why I love being your daddy? Because I love being your daddy. And some of you in this room need to hear God say, you need to hear God say to you, I love being your daddy. Some of you in this room need to hear God say to you this morning out of Isaiah, I love you because I love you because I love you. And it is my joy to be your daddy. You need to hear that. And this vertical change, it leads to horizontal change that, that when I've received the affection of the Father, I can extend the affection of the Father. If I'm, if I'm not trying to earn the love of the Father, I don't have to live under the lie that other people have to earn mine. Right? If, I, if I don't have to earn the love of the Father, I don't have to lie to myself and convince myself that other people need to earn my love. And I'm free. I'm free, I'm free, my marriage, I'm free. I'm, I'm free to love my wife simply because I love my wife and not make her earn my love. I, I can come to this church in our parish and when I have God as my father who loves me because he loves me because he loves me, I can say to this church, I love you because I love you because I love you. And you know why I love you? Because I love you. And you can go to your parishes and you can look at people in the eye and you can say, hey, listen, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, but you know what? I love you because I love you because I love you. And in a month or two months, you're going to do something that's going to hurt me. And when you do, you know what? I love you because I love you because I love you. And I'm going to love you enough to look you in the eyes and talk to you about it. But I love you because I love you because I love you. And we can be, it's actually possible to be as committed to one another as the Father is to us. And I can look at my neighborhood differently. I can look at my neighborhood and I don't have to fear the people in my apartment thinking I'm a hypocrite. I don't have to fear people walking into my house, seeing a bottle of wine and thinking, that guy's a pastor? I don't think so. I don't have to fear being seen as a hypocrite because you know what? I am. I am. I'm a hypocrite being redeemed by the blood of Jesus day in and day out. And I can embrace Listen, I can embrace that my neighbor might be a better husband than I am. My neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't love the same God I love, might actually be a better husband than I am. I can actually embrace my neighbor might be a better husband than I am. I can embrace that my neighbor might actually be a better person than I am because I'm not saved by my righteousness. I'm saved because Father split the heavens and sent Christ here. I'm saved because the heavens have been split and Christ has come. My hope's not in me or what they think of me. It's in Christ has come. And so I'm free. I'm free. I'm free to not worry about what other people think of me. Because my banner isn't my self-righteousness anymore. It's Christ. It's his righteousness. It's what he's done for me. And so why do we, why do we have Advent and the church calendar because we want we want a annual and a structural way to consistently remind ourselves that the heavens have split and Christ has come a tangible way to consistently remind us
that Christ has come so that God can say through us, I love you because I love you because I love you. And that the orb of our church might center around the redeeming work of Jesus. The redeeming hope of Christ. And so we're going to take a deep dive into Advent and then we're going to go into Epiphany where the King is coming and now the King is here. And we're going to look at life in light of Christ. And we're going to look at life in light of Christ so that we might hear. We might hear. You might hear. And I, who might need to hear it more than anybody, might hear God say to us, I love being your daddy. Let's pray.